Duke Energy offers these three tips for understanding your bill. The first step to keeping your bill in check is understanding what's on it. Here's what to look for. Check the number of days in your billing cycle. Most bills cover 30 days, but sometimes it varies. Bills that cover more days can be higher. Look at average kilowatt hour use per day. At first glance, your bill may look higher, but if your average use is similar to the same time last year or similar to another month with extreme temperatures, it's a normal bill. If you have a smart meter, check for a daily usage analysis tool online. Smart meters collect info by the hour, so you can check for spikes in energy use to see what appliances and behaviors are increasing your bill. This public service announcement is sponsored by Duke Energy. Hi, this is Shane Ray for Duke Energy Presents Central Indiana Today. Our guests tonight are going to be from a couple of different places, I guess you could say, because uh, one of them also involves a different interviewer. Our own Brittany Dial on the Dial, the intern we had over the summer, does her one and only interview as part of her training. She interviews someone from Central Indiana Canine Association. And then afterwards, I'm going to be talking with someone from FOSI, F-O-S-I. You may be wondering what that is. Well, I'll explain in just a bit. All you have to do is keep it right here on WYRZ. Duke Energy presents Central Indiana Today. Shane Ray talks with the newsmakers in and around Hendricks County. And now your host, Shane Ray. This is Brittany Dial on the Dial. I know last week was my last week on the station, but I actually came back for a very special interview. This is Central Indiana Today, and my special guest is Mrs. Teresa Brandon, and she is here with Central Indiana K-9. So, Teresa, can you tell us a little bit more about Central Indiana K-9? Well, I sure can. First of all, thank you very much for having me on today, Brittany. It's a pleasure to be able to sit here with you. The Central Indiana Canine Association is a not-for-profit organization that was recently founded by both myself and Kyle Schaefer, who serves on the Hendricks County Sheriff's Department. He is the lead canine trainer for there. I actually reached out to them earlier in the year in January to talk about the possibility of creating a nonprofit, And we met a couple of times and felt that we both had a vision of something that we wanted to do that was directly related to canines. In fact, you'll often hear Kyle and myself say it is just about the dog. I understand you have some history working with military and police dogs in the past. So what other projects have you worked on besides Central Indiana Canine to get you started with Indiana? Well, to tell you the truth, I actually did live and work and retired down in the Dallas, Texas area about six years ago. And after I retired or before I retired, Actually, I had founded a nonprofit down there called the Cedar Hill Pet Memorial Project. There was actually a historic pet cemetery down there that was almost lost. And unfortunately, because there were no laws in the state of Texas protecting the property, when the owner deserted the property, I decided I needed to do something. I couldn't just walk away. I had a couple of pets buried there, and it was just a lovely little community asset. So I formed a nonprofit. We raised the money. We went on the auction block, saved the property 
property. And then myself and another Hoosier, uh, Nick Collins from Fort Wayne, Indiana, as a matter of fact, uh, was working with me on that project. And he said, why don't we do a war dog monument? And I said, great. So that's what we did. We started looking at building a war dog monument, which we actually did down there. I'm going to share a picture with you so you can have that for your listeners um, and for the rest of your audience, because it's pretty, pretty incredible down there. We mm-hmm. love that piece. As a result of that, we actually decided that we wanted to build something else that was going to help the canine handlers and their retired dogs. Uh, when those dogs retire, Brittany, they have given so much that unlike our couch potato pets that sit around and not do a whole lot, these dogs put their life on the line every day. In fact, when you look at the logo for our organization here in Indiana, we have a little thin blue line that goes through the nine. That actually represents the dog who puts himself between harm's way and the police officer. So when Nick and I first established it down there, we reached out to some police officers and other folks, firefighters, who have canines, working dogs, and talked about setting up a special medical emergency grant fund to help them. Because when those dogs go home after with the handler, after they retire, the full financial responsibility falls on that handler. And the last thing we want to do is have that handler go into extreme debt trying to care for this animal or make an awful decision where they can't afford it and have to use the eyes of the dog. That's not a very nice way to say thank you. And I see here that there are three different phases that you were looking at for Central Indiana Canine. So the Shadow Fund, which is what you were just talking about for the medical grant. But I also see that you're interested in having a training site and a war dog monument. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I can, and absolutely, you're spot on. We start with the shadow fund where canine officers around central Indiana and the nine counties can actually apply if they have a retired canine that's a working dog and may need some financial assistance. The other two programs, as you mentioned, the training site, Kyle and I have talked about that, and we want to actually set up a location where a permanent training site could be established. We're hoping that there'll be someone who can donate three to five acres to the organization and that we can build that permanent site for them. Part of that has to do with the fact that we want the canine officers to have a ready location to go to, and it's also available across multi-agencies, whether the law enforcement, uh, homeland security, uh, firefighters, just any number of search and rescue. There's lots of ways that we have working dogs in the area. So we want to have a permanent training site. We're not looking to do the training ourselves, but simply to have the location. The other thing is to do our own war dog monument right here in Indiana. I got to tell you, there have been a lot of states around the country who've been building their own monuments to uh, canines. And being a Hoosier born right here in Brownsburg and the central Indiana area, I absolutely want to do that. Now with the training site, how important is it that we have a training site? Are there any other training sites in Indiana for, for police dogs or military dogs? And that's a great question. There are some, there are a variety here and there, but there isn't one that's that's large enough and has the kind of training site that we want to have both outdoor and an indoor facility. Um, part of that is to help bring in trainers to help 
the trainers, the canine trainers and handlers in Indiana. For the most part, a lot of them have to travel out out of state of Indiana in order to get their training. So by having this, we can have multi-agencies across Indiana do training at the same time. This is a real benefit to the community too. When you think about our tax dollars that helps to pay for and support those canines with the various law enforcement, if they have an opportunity to train across agencies, they actually will get better at that and have better coordinated activities. Because quite frankly, what people don't realize is they already help support each other. There are times that the Hendricks County Canine Unit will work in the Avon area or the Plainfield or the Brownsburg area. I mean, it just really depends. And there are a lot of small communities that might have a need for a canine unit. And so there's a lot of cross purposes there. And can you tell us a little bit more about the shadow fund? So I know it's very important that these dogs have the medical care, but what exactly is this going towards? That's a great question. The shadow fund is a fund that uh, people will submit um, a, a grant request. It is a grant, so they don't have to pay it back. It could be a small amount of money. It could be a larger amount of money, and a lot of different factors go into determining that. But the board of directors themselves actually will make that decision case by case. Now, it could be anything from special diagnostics to medication to therapy to serious operations. Um, it, there's just a whole gamut of things that these dogs go through physically. Um, you know, the cost can really range. Give you a good example. Um, Deputy Kyle Schaefer's dog just got retired. He wasn't expecting it, actually. It was a surprise. Um, he had discovered, unfortunately, that his dog, Canine Bach, has congestive heart failure. Well, that doesn't require surgery, but it does require three different medications every day. Since the dog is retired, that now falls on uh, Deputy Schaefer. He has to pay for that. And it's about $150 a month on just the medications for his dog. And certainly he's going to pay that because he feels obligated to take care of this dog that's under his care now. But I've seen uh, another dog down in uh, Texas recently went through a massive surgery, and that's going to run into the thousands of dollars. Now, as far as we go, I, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, we'll pay that full bill. It all depends on several different factors, the parameters that the board decides on, the amount of funds that we have in that account. And that's another reason why I'm very grateful that you're allowing us to reach out to your audience today, because I want everybody to know we can serve those who have served us through only your assistance. Of course. So these dogs, they don't just choose to retire them at a certain age. Do they? How long do they work? When do you retire a dog? You know, again, it's it's kind of like the, the proverbial, it all depends. It depends on how the dog is reacting. In the case of canine Bach, they were expecting at least another couple of years of service from him. But the dog cannot work with congestive heart failure. He literally... It would kill him to keep him on, and it's not effective. It's not effective for the dog and for the law enforcement, but certainly not for uh, Deputy Schaefer either, since he relies on him to help. So in some cases, you'll have some dogs that'll go all the way up until we're time it's to retire, uh, which could be around age 11, 12. Uh, which is fairly old for a, for a canine. Not all dogs have the ability to retire because it's so hard on them. Some of them don't live in uh, you know long enough to retire. These dogs around the state, there's a lot of them that are giving a lot to. Um, they're 
counties and their communities, and they ask for so little in return. How many dogs are you expecting this to help? So are you looking at police dogs, military dogs? Are there other dogs that can benefit from this? These are all working dogs that we're talking about, and that's specified by the fact that, one, they have to have a certification, whether it's for narcotics tracking, um, bomb sniffing, uh, search and rescue. They all have an area of specialty. Some of the dogs actually have a dual purpose, is what they call it. They may be both a tracking as well as a narcotics dog. So they serve a great deal to the community. Their additional service is also in terms of their deterrent, a natural deterrent. Somebody sees a police officer with a dog, they're less likely, if they have the wherewithal, to not go there and not challenge that officer or not perform any kind of a a criminal act. So those dogs can act in that way. They also act as a good will gesture, building a good bridge between law enforcement as well as the community. Everybody loves a dog. Everybody loves animals in in generalities. Uh, So we like that. But those dogs do serve a very serious purpose. They help us the community, and they help that officer make sure that they get to go home at night to their own family. What are the qualification um, criteria? If somebody has a dog and they're interested in taking advantage of the shadow fund, what is the criteria for that? Great question. There are three main criteria. The first one is they must be certified in one of those areas of expertise that I just mentioned. They'll actually receive a certificate actual after they successfully complete a training program. The second thing we need to see is a bona fide letter stating that they are fully retired from a specific agency, whether it's law enforcement, uh, Indiana Homeland Security, uh, a military unit, or a fire uh, agency. The third thing that we need to see and have proof of is that that handler who claims that this dog is now his responsibility was, in fact, assigned to him, retired to him, or purchased by him. So we need to have those three main criteria, first and foremost. The second part of that is that we need to make sure that we have full documentation from a veterinarian that says this dog is ill or is incapacitated or has some serious illness and it costs X number of dollars. So the canine handler will at that time present to us all this documentation plus an application, which everybody can find online at our website. And that website is www.cik9.org.org. And look for the shadow fund on that website, and you'll be able to pull up the application and actually fill that out and submit that. So I understand that this is a 501c3 status nonprofit. If there are people listening that are interested in donating time, money, or just interested in learning more about the project, where can they go to do that? Well, I would strongly suggest, first and foremost, that they go to the website. Um, You can check out the several different pages on there. For instance, we have a, a page called From the Field. And I love this piece because there's once a month we have a new article, and they're written by the canine officers themselves. In fact, this month's article is written by uh, Tom Owens. He's a sergeant with the Avon Police Department. And Tom wrote about his past uh, canine hunter. 
after Cunter had retired, he needed some serious medical uh, needs. Fortunately, Sergeant Owens did not need to have additional help because he was able to get that through his department. But that isn't the case normally. Um, the other thing on there is anybody who would like to sponsor us, take a look at our sponsor page because you will see we we relish the opportunity to say thank you and to highlight those people who support us. Because after all, we can't do what we do to help them without your help. So you also asked about how people can support. We certainly are looking for volunteers because we do various activities that we're going to need individuals to help us as far as setting up a booth somewhere. Uh, we have some other events coming up. For instance, like in September, we're looking to do the Quaker Day event down in Plainfield. And we're going to have a canine demonstration down there. So we're going to need people to help us do the setup for that. We're also always looking for people who have a specific talent, um, people who want to help us do some kind of a special project. We've got a couple of those coming up as well. And if anybody has any questions or ever wants to reach out and hear from us, just send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at CIK9.org, O-R-G, and we'll make sure that the correct person gets to you. You mentioned that this nonprofit is um, open and accepting applications for the Shadow Fund from Central Indiana, but which counties exactly is that offered to? Well, thank you. That's a great question. We actually cover nine counties that are surrounding Marion County. That's Boone, Hamilton, Hancock, Hendricks, Johnson, Madison, Marion, Morgan, and Shelby. We're always looking for an opportunity to share this information. Uh, if anybody is interested in having me as a guest speaker at their event uh, to share with their board or with their organization or would like to donate, uh, please do contact me, Teresa Brandon, at the info at CIK9.org. Thank you so much, Teresa. This nonprofit is really interesting. I do think that a lot of the canines out there will need our help. So I think it's really great that we have the Shadow Fund training site and War Dog Memorial. And I hope that other people out there will be able to take advantage of the services that this offers, or hopefully they'll be able to help out with this project as well. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's great to be able to come back home to Indiana and to serve my community as I have the rest of the nation. As promised, we have our guest from Family Online Safety Institute. It's Stephen Balcom. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Excellent. Second time's a charm. Yep. Inside joke for everyone who's listening right now. Hey, uh, he is, uh, like I said, he's here with, to talk about Family Online Safety Institute, but first we'll get to know him a little bit better. How is Stephen today? I'm feeling great. Thanks. Uh, good? It's my second time here in Indy, and I'm loving it. Now, if it's second time in Indy, where are you from? Um, well, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., which not a lot of people can say. Yeah. Um, but uh, as a teenager, I was taken, uh, my whole family moved to the U.K. So I ended up going to school over there, got work over there, uh, finally came home uh, back in the 90s. And so here I am. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, well, let's see, you say uh, you're here in Hendricks County right now, but are you in other parts of Indiana later on? Is that some of that? Uh, we're doing, uh, we did uh, Fox News this morning. Uh, we just did an event uh, with Macaroni Kids, which mm -hmm. is a national parents organization so we just did an hour-long presentation on about how to keep your kids safe online mm -hmm. and here i am now 
Okay, well, let's get right into that. Tell us, all right, the, it's called Family Online Safety Institute, right? right. All right, yep. tell us what that is for someone who has no clue. Okay, so we set it up in 2007. It's an international nonprofit working to make the online world safer for kids and their families. Uh, we work in public policy, i.e. laws, regulations, industry best practices. So we try and we work with the companies to improve their trust and safety offerings. And we have a project called Good Digital Parenting. And what that's all about is to empower parents to confidently navigate the web with their kids. Notice I didn't say to scare the bejesus out of them <laughs> uh, or terrify them. No, we want people to have the tips, the tools, the resources in order to feel more comfortable with this technology that is racing ahead. And often the kids are way ahead of their own parents. Okay. Now, how long has the organization been around? Set it up in 2007, Two so we're in our 13th year. Okay. Was you, were you, was the organization, of course, I don't know, have you been with uh, the organization since? I founded it. Um, oh, excellent. Okay. And before that, I was running a content labeling system for websites, which I set up uh, back in the mid-90s. Um, and the idea there was a bit like a, the movie rating system, where websites would self-label the content that they had on their website, mm -hmm. uh, and then parents could block stuff they didn't want their kids to see. The problem was the web around 2005 changed dramatically mm -hmm. with social media coming out, mobile phones showing up, and kids were starting to create the content we used to try and keep them away from, and they were doing it on the fly. So it, the business model of self-labeling websites was out the window. We decided we needed to get an institute together to bring government, industry, nonprofits, academics, and parents together to try and collaborate and to innovate in this space. Now, did you find that, uh, it would, would there be more of a personal reason for wanting to start this, or did you get together with parents or something like that? Well, I'm a father, I have two, two daughters, okay. um, and my youngest at the time, uh, basically, uh, you know, from the moment the iPhone appeared in the same year, by the way, 2007, uh, and she was all of what, 11 years old, dad, I want this new iPhone. Um, she kind of was probably my best teacher all mm -hmm. the way through. Um, she had to wait until she was 13 to get onto Facebook, even though everyone else was already right, on. Right, right. Uh, she had to wait till 12 to get a phone. And at that time, it was a dumb phone or a, a feature phone. Mm -hmm. um, and we put in, you know, rules and, and, and had uh, sanctions that many of her friends, nobody, no, none of my friends have these uh, rules in their home. Mm -hmm. um, but then that was 2010, 2011, a lot in those early years when things were really exploding. Now, uh, you say she kind of was like your your guide, so to speak, yeah. on uh, on when it came to that stuff. For sure. Did you get um, get a lot of input from other uh, parents? Of course, of course. Everyone was struggling at the same time, and um, you know, some years ago, I can remember the question was, uh, "Oh, by the way, do you have a gun in your house? And if so, is it locked?" Now it was, "Do you have parental controls mm -hmm. in your home?" Because I don't really want my daughter to come over and just see whatever. Right. So, you know, the conversation has shifted and changed. Also, I think norms keep changing. Mm -hmm. You know, in the early days of, of, do you remember MySpace? Mm, yeah. And then Facebook, people just took photographs and threw them up there and tagged people. Now, if you're at a kid's birthday party, people are asking, do you mind if I take pictures? Right. 
and uh, if I take a picture, I promise I'm not going to tag anyone, or I don't mind if you tag. But those conversations are happening now in a way that they didn't when we set Fozy up. Yeah. What has been probably the biggest challenge uh, since starting this? I, I think, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, the sheer speed with which the change sure. is occurring. There are 5,000 new apps uploaded to the App Store globally every day. Um, and so just trying to keep up with this, and this is my job 24-7, I can't keep up with it. Mm -hmm. So an ordinary parent certainly will never be able to get their head around everything that's going on. What we do say, though, is to stay in connection. Keep that conversation going with your child. Share the values you have as a family. Um, and, and that, for me, is the best parental control out there. The other thing I would say, what's changed dramatically, is the technology is, or the parents are having to make decisions about technology at a younger and younger age. Mm -hmm. My first, the, the, the most asked question when we launched FOSI, should I get my high schooler a phone? Mm -hmm. Now, then it became middle schooler, and now we're seeing kindergartners showing up with iPhones. Mm -hmm. The iPhones that are passbacks, you know, the ones in the car when the kids are screaming and you pass your phone back, mm -hmm. and in a way you never end up seeing them again because you, you just go and get another one. Mm -hmm. Well, we're handing five, six, seven-year-old supercomputers, which is not necessarily a good idea. Right. Yeah. Uh, did uh, When it came to this, did you find, I mean, I would assume... Let me back that up a little. You're saying that uh, probably the cell phone was probably the thing that, that tricked uh, or that ch triggered um, this this goal of yours and this awareness is maybe a better way of saying that. Did you find that uh, there is a difference between the how much use the phone gets versus how much a desktop or a laptop gets? Oh, I mean, kids, first of all, I mean, they probably are only on desktops at school or in a library. Yeah. They are typically on a phone, an iPad, uh, a a, some kind of game counts console, um, or, or Alexa, you know, a, a smart speaker. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we used to say, put the, put the family computer in the living room. Well, that's, I, I remember those, those golden days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they seem very sweet and naive now. And we were all petrified then mm -hmm. uh, about pornography, about violent images, and so on. Um, it's gone, by the way, from a concern about consumption of content to the kind of content that kids are uploading, or the kind of behaviors like cyberbullying and sexting that they're acting out mm -hmm. um, about not just who they contact, but who can contact them. So it's become a much, it's, it's, it's three-dimensional chess now, whereas it used to just be checkers. Yeah. That's a, that's a good analogy. Uh, when you're on uh, when you're on these speaking engagements like uh, you have been today, do you get questions about parenting, parenting advice, or, um, as far as uh, how do I how do I uh, handle a specific situation or something like that when it comes yeah. to the internet? Sure. So on these talks, and I by the way, I try to keep my opening remarks really short to mm -hmm. let the questions and the questions flow in. Yeah, you probably run out of time. We did those. run out of time yeah. earlier today. So what we try and did do is uh, work off the seven steps to good digital parenting. And this is a, a one pager that you can download from FOSI.org. And the seven steps are our sort of distillation of everything we've heard, read, and given advice on. Number one, not surprisingly, talk with your kids. Mm -hmm. Number two, educate yourself. 
there is no reason not to know anything anymore. I, I just used the description of uh, the story of the fact that my washing machine was leaking. What did I do? I didn't call the manufacturer. I went onto YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I found a YouTube half a... YouTube University, they I had it. a half a dozen videos describing my particular washing machine yeah. and how to, how to fix the seal. So if you want to know how to stop having comments on, on uh, your Sony PlayStation or that, that your son is using or how to set time limits on your Android phone, there will be sites, there will be information, there will be videos. So educate yourself. Um, three, we, we talk about using parental controls. Every conceivable device that exists now, any phone, any laptop, all now come with free or nearly free parental controls. Use them. Mm-hmm. There are privacy settings on Facebook. Use them. TikTok, which is the latest phenomenon, by the way, can be set privately. A lot of parents don't realize this. So use the controls that are there. All the way through to number seven, my favorite, which is be a good digital role model yourself. Put the damn phone down at dinner. Yeah, exactly. Um, kids, the number one complaint we get from kids, I can't get my mom's attention. She's always on her laptop. Mm. I went to cuddle with dad, but he was on Facebook. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Yeah. So if we can't control ourselves, um, obviously our, parents, our kids are not going to either. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, of course, being up in D.C., do you, uh, get, do you work a lot with uh, government officials or things like that? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So we educate um, folks up on the Hill. We do a quarterly session called FOSI Briefs the Hill. Um, we just did that uh, recently with uh, with Roblox and Lego and, and a psychologist talking about young children and tech and toys. Oh, Mattel was there, too, because they just launched their Hot Wheels ID. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Hot Wheels? Oh, yeah. I grew up on Hot Wheels. Oh, yeah. Got a yard buried full of <laughs> So you got to check Wheels, out sure. Hot Wheels ID. Okay. Because they now the cars come with chips. Ah. And you can uh, identify them. On, you can play with them online. You can race other kids and, and other adults. It's astonishing. Everything that we've known about, anything that's physical, is getting some kind of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're heading. The screens are going to start to go away. The keyboards are going to go away. We're just going to talk at things mm-hmm. like Alexa and Google Home and get a response. Yeah. And kids or two-year-olds walk into, into kitchens and say, Alexa, play Baby Shark, you know, right. and expect a response. How, um, not, uh, you don't have to mention any names, but when you do talk with these government uh, officials, whether they're congressmen, whether they're at some other hired branch of the service, how up to speed are they? How, how well do they recognize how fast technology is going? So I had the honor and privilege to uh, provide testimony to the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing uh, only two weeks ago called Protecting Innocence in a Digital World. Mm-hmm. Um, I was asked about Mortal Kombat and AOL chat rooms by one of the good senators. And it was, I felt like it was deja vu all over again <laughs> because I actually sat in that same committee hearing room in 1995 mm-hmm. to talk about this new thing called the internet. Yeah. So I'm afraid some of our good senators on both sides of the aisle have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. Um, there are others who are very uh, active and lively online and uh, have a much better grasp. So it's arranged, just like parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also talk a lot with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, because they have 
COPPA, the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, which is under review right now, uh, we end up talking, in fact, uh, I, we had the First Lady uh, at our conference last year because of her Be Best campaign. And I've been to the White House several times uh, to talk about our work. So, you know, we will talk with whomever, wherever, on the public policy side, both at the national, um, but also at the local and state levels. Hmm. I would assume when it comes to those, their knowledge has to do with their age on how fast this is. Most certainly. And obviously, and also the ones who have young staffers. Yeah. um, Who are usually the ones who are the ones providing the questions or the the statements um, because they're busy and they're also having to deal with agriculture and foreign, you know, developments. (laughs) I mean, to be able to try and get your head around this topic in the midst of everything else is tough. Now, I think everyone needs to know Family Online Safety Institute, that is a nonprofit, correct? It is, and we have over two dozen of the companies as members. Um, So Facebook, Google, Microsoft. um, I'm actually here on this tour with the support of Verizon, uh, who are talking up their parental controls, their uh, Just Kids product, and so on. So I'm very grateful to them, very grateful to the industry support that we get. We also get funding from foundations, uh, even government agencies. So, all right, funding from government agencies, but you're always looking for donations or sponsors at any time, right? Absolutely, of course. Well, all right, let's remind everyone, what is the website they can go to if they so want more information? So it's org, and there you will see links to Good Digital Parenting, to our events, uh, to our public policy, our research whatever you're particularly interested in. All right. Now, if you missed any information, you can give me a call here at the radio station at 317-852-1610. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to get you in touch with Stephen. He's going to help you out ASAP, right? Uh, We will do our best. Okay. (laughs) Did we cover everything? Yeah, one last thing. Sure. Um, We've just launched a series of short videos, no more than two minutes each, to illustrate the seven steps to good digital parenting. And you can find them both on our website, but also on YouTube, youtube.com slash FOSI. And it is parents and kids talking, illustrating in a fun, uplifting way the, the various different ways in which you can keep your kids safe online. Okay, that's cool. All right, that was Stephen. He's with Family Online Safety Institute. And uh, if uh, you're ever back in this area again, you got some updates for us, be sure and let us know. We'd be happy to. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Central Indiana Today with your host, Shane Ray. This program has been sponsored by Duke Energy. Duke Energy offers these three tips for understanding your bill. Change air filters on a regular basis. A dirty air filter makes an HVAC system work harder and use more energy. Set your thermostat as high as comfortable. The smaller the difference between the inside and outside temperatures, the lower your energy bill will be. Close blinds and curtains on sunny days. This public service announcement is sponsored by Duke Energy.